Hey everyone, Glenn here at the top of the show with a content advisory. This issue of The Sandman, Calliope, it it centers around episodes of sexual assault. So if that is not something that you want to read about, not something you want to hear about, uh, or something you want other people in your car or your kitchen with you to hear about, go ahead and skip this episode. The issue itself is a standalone story, and you can absolutely pick right back up with us next month where we're going to get a charming story about cats, and you won't have missed anything crucial. Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. This episode, Sandman number 17, the first issue in Dream Country, Calliope. Cover date, July 1990. Art by Kelly Jones, who we'll see a lot of coming in the future issues. Um, Inker, Malcolm Jones III. Daniel Vazo is colorist. Todd Klein is letterer. Uh, Tom Payer as assistant editor, and Karen Berger, of course, as editor. Yeah, here we are. Dream Country, the third volume of Sandman. Uh, absolutely one of my favorites. I'm, I'm excited when we're all done with Sandman to see where it ranks uh, when we do our final wrap-up episode. But I have been very excited to get to this. This is what I've really been waiting for. It's the the first Sandman short story collection that we're doing. And some of my favorite issues, I think, are, are in here. And uh, yeah, you said Kelly Jones, we're going to see a lot more of in the future. And one thing to say about Dream Country up front is that the issues all have guest artists. Uh, So we've got Kelly Jones here on Calliope, though Kelly Jones is also going to do A Dream of a Thousand Cats, which is in Dream Country. And then the other two issues will have different guest artists. We'll talk about those when we we get there. And uh, this issue in particular, Calliope, is Gaiman telling us a story uh, about writing, about being a writer. Uh, We've been seeing a lot of this in the past few episodes, at least the past few episodes that we've recorded. Anyway, it feels like. And we are going to get more of that I think in Dream Country as well. And then, of course, always Gaiman is, I guess, writing about writers and writing and literature. But this is a story that I really, really enjoy. I really like this story, even though it is full of human awfulness. Yeah, I have real mixed feelings about this story because it's a lot of it's just kind of painful to um, think about and experience. Um, but it's also kind of a nice little um ditty it's a nice little story it's it's um um and i really like a lot of these kind of one-off uh issues where we kind of get the full range of the story um neil gaiman as we've talked about in short stories we've covered of his does a very good job writing short stories in addition to writing longer form and so it isn't surprising that he also does such a good job uh writing comic script comic scripts that work well within a very confined number of pages, just as one-off issues. So, um, and I think this, um, might've been the first collection that I really remember reading the whole collection, so to speak. And we'll talk about that more when we do the wrap up, but, uh, um, I have a lot more memories of this, I think because, um, it was what was available at the library when I checked it out. Um, and also it, I just really love, um, a lot of the art within it, um, as well as the covers. 
I think Calliope actually may have been my first issue of the Sandman, though I don't really remember that because I've read them all so many times now that that memory has kind of gotten jumbled up. But that's maybe my recollection. And certainly this was always a, a favorite of mine. You know, you mentioned scripts a minute ago, Brent, so we should also say at the top here that the the physical volume of Dream Country that we've got that we're working from contains within it the script for this uh, this issue that actually has handwritten markups on it as as well. We'll bring a little bit of that into the episode today, but I think we're going to look at that uh, in more detail, maybe at more length when we do our wrap-up episode and, and talk about the volume as a whole. But uh, it's really cool to have that. Yeah, it's really great to have that. And particularly if you've never seen what a comics uh, script actually looks like, um, I think it's really a fascinating thing to see. Well, let's uh, let's get into the, the story. And uh we begin with a hairball. It is actually a uh, trichinobezoar. It's uh, a ball of hair removed from a woman's stomach earlier uh, today, earlier the day that the story is beginning. And it smells. The protagonist of this story, we meet right away, his name is Richard Madoc. He's the British novelist who wrote The Cabaret of Dr. Caligari. Uh, but we learned right away on a phone call with his agent that Madoc is past due on his second novel, uh, for which he received a serious business advance, which is nice. But the thing is that uh, Madoc hasn't written a word of that book. So writer's block is going to be the driving motivation for Madoc here, and he's going to do some awful things out of that motivation. Uh, but before we get, I think, too far into this plot, we should talk about Dr. Caligari before we go on. Yeah. So um, The Cabaret of Dr. Caligari, Caligari was a great film, silent film from 1920, and it starred, uh, if I remember correctly... It was a doctor who used either hypnotism or otherwise uh, had someone who was sleepwalking to help them commit crimes. Yeah, I've never actually seen this film. Have you seen it? I think I've seen bits of it uh, years ago, so uh, I don't have a <laughs> I don't have a very good recollection of it. But I'm aware that it uh, is one of kind of those great pieces of uh, film that people talk about when they talk a lot about early silent films from the. 19 teens through the 19 early 1920s kind of yeah and i i don't know many of those films at all and in fact i i I've know many of the names but have never seen them i've never seen metropolis which i i know is basically criminal but uh, i don't know maybe we should uh think about doing an episode on dr caligari but, uh, i don't know maybe in the the break between uh uh between volumes here or maybe we'll do that as a patreon bonus episode or something like that but uh you know gaiman has invoked it here so i think we should check it out that'd be a, a, a lot of fun but uh, uh we can get back to the the plot i guess so the, the question is uh what does a hairball uh a trichinobezoar have to do with writer's block. Well, we're going to we're going to find out. So, uh Madoc takes the Bezoar out into the night where he passes by one of the uh iconic dolphin lamps of London. He crosses a bridge. Uh I suspect this looked to me like this is the Waterloo Bridge. Uh, none of that really matters. It's just that I missed London, so I stared at that image for a really really long time uh trying to figure that out. Uh but what's actually going on here is that Madoc is headed to the home of Erasmus Fry, the famous British novelist, uh, now a cantankerous old man who is preparing to face the end of his life. The Bezoar is a present for Fry and He's going to give something to Madoc in return. We will get to that shortly because uh, we first get a pretty long monologue about these bezoars, like what they're for, their history, some famous examples of them, which was uh, not something I was expecting. I'd forgotten about this. 
Yeah, I remember there was some discussion of Pizors in here, and I remember particularly the art that we see right on the first page of this kind of clotted hairball. But um, I didn't recall that there was such a long kind of dissertation given by Erasmus Fry <laughs> on, and it, it's interesting because I don't. It's interesting because I don't know that in discussing the history of it, he ever lets up why he wants it. Uh, they are known to, or rumored to, they are known to, they are rumored to um, help uh, prevent someone from getting poisoned. So uh, we'll see something about poison later in the episode about this. There also, I want to mention that um, Leslie Klinger points out in the Annotated Sandman that one of the uh, early cases of uh, English British law uh, from the early 1600s specifically is about an argument um, about a bezoar. And uh, that is the origin for in kind of British legal doctrine that is often pointed to for caveat emptor or let the buyer beware. So I think Bezoars have a we we obviously get from Rasmus Fry this long history um, within even, you know, use in the British Isles. We've got um, a history back to at least the early 1600s, but also skepticism as to whether they do anything going back at least that far, too. Yeah, right. And and something that gets invoked here on the page is John D, the actual real historical John D, not Dr. Destiny. Uh, we had promised back when we were doing the first volume of Sandman, Preludes and Nocturnes, like literally years ago now, that we would talk about the historical John D. And then I never made good on that promise. I won't do too much of that here. But, you know, he was uh, alive around this time, around 1600. He died in 1608. And uh, I think we believe he lived in to his 80s or to be about 80. So, you know, he was born around 1530 or something like that. We don't generally have good birth records for people. We may actually for John Dee. I don't know uh, what the evidence is for that. Uh, but John Dee was a court astronomer, uh, which is really just to say he was an advisor to Elizabeth I. He was super into alchemy and sorcery, what uh, is really called hermetic philosophy. So he was uh, both a scientist and a wizard, uh, which is something that's very common during the the so-called, I'll say, uh, scientific revolution that's happening at this time that he's really a part of, along with Isaac Newton, who, you know, we tend to think of as being the the dude who had an apple fall in his head and then figured out all of the physics that we ever needed to send people to the moon and eventually, hopefully someday, Mars and so on. Uh, but Newton also was super involved in hermetic philosophy and thought of himself as just as much a, a wizard as he did a, a scientist. So the, these guys, John Dee and Isaac Newton and many, many others were really cut from the, the same cloth. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised to learn that John D. had a Bezoar collection because he thought it would protect him from being poisoned, which is probably something that he would have been at risk of uh, because of court intrigue. And, and I wouldn't be shocked to learn that Isaac Newton had a similar collection or was wearing like amulets or something that he thought was going to protect him from uh, from some kind of ailment as well. This was uh, this is kind of what the what, what things are like around the year 1600. John Dee also, uh, I believe, is one of the figures who some people believe really wrote some of Shakespeare's plays. Um, when you go back to the wonderful conspiracy theories of the age um, <laughs> and the ones that followed in terms of like, how could 
this person who is William Shakespeare really given, you know, all of these other things like what he has in his will when he dies? How could this be this great writer? It must really have been either Francis Bacon or John Dee or both of them or some third person or maybe Cthulhu. Um, <laughs> it's really kind of uncertain, but, uh, but this is John Dee is very much kind of uh, he's a Renaissance man. He's uh, he's fun to drop and bring into conversation. And as you mentioned, Glenn, um, we also have his namesake, John D as Dr. Destiny, who we've already kind of dealt with in the comic. So he's a, he's a fun person to bring up and he also kind of fits in nicely with some of the motifs throughout dream country. We're going to return to Neil Gaiman, uh, thinking about uh, circa 1600 again. I mean, literally in two episodes where we also will, uh, will discover who actually uh, wrote William Shakespeare's plays, uh, at least according to, to Neil Gaiman, we'll find out about that. But of course, Gaiman also has done some Marvel work set uh, in this period. It's a, it's a period, I guess, that he's super interested in. So uh, we'll be spending some time there as the the years go on, but uh, uh, let's carry on with this, uh, this story here. So uh, what, Madoc has purchased with this Bezor is a woman. Uh, it's a blonde woman, uh, definitely imprisoned in Fry's home. Uh, it turns out, though, that she's not just some random woman. She's not even human. She's not immortal at all. She is, in fact, Calliope. She's one of the nine muses. She is the muse of epic poetry, the muse of Homer, and uh, many others. And Fry does mean this literally, that she is a Greek goddess. And in his youth, in 1927, he captured her through force. Uh, he used the magical herb moly and, and also some rituals in order to magically bind her to him. And that part was actually pretty easy, he says. What was difficult was getting a woman with no documentation out of Greece and into the UK. But she's here, and Fry has had an amazing career full of both fame and glory because of her, because he's kept her imprisoned. But he's old, he's retiring, he's done with her now, and so he is selling her to, to Madoc, he's giving her to, to Madoc, even though he promised her that he would free her before he died. And my sense of this, Brent, actually goes back to what the Bezor is for. Also, it, my sense of this is that Fry wants to retire. He actually wants to be, I don't know, free of her is maybe not the best way to phrase this, but he doesn't want to have to continue to be her custodian, but he is afraid of her vengeance if he lets her go. And uh, that's certainly understandable. He should be afraid of her vengeance. And so what he's doing is giving her into the sort of magical, sort of numinous possession of someone else, which I guess he thinks should make her unable to come after him. And this is also why he's collecting the, the Bezoars, because he believes that they will protect him from magic and maybe also from the powers of, of goddesses from the powers of Calliope or someone who may try to harm him on her behalf. No, I think that's probably a good guess. Um, and it kind of calls back to, um, the trinkets that people use to try to protect themselves, um, from scrying eyes. Um, and Sykes had the items to protect himself. And then, uh, as soon as one was taken away, then, uh, he lost his life immediately. Um, and then some of those trinkets ended up in D's hands eventually, uh, as well. So I think that that's probably what is going on is that Erasmus has kind of decided he's kind of near an end, or at least as an end of being a writer. Um, although he does specifically tell, uh, Rick Maddock when he leaves that, uh, he should put in a good word for, uh, a book of his, um, here comes a candle and to baby put that back into print is the last thing he says um, as um, Richard Maddock leaves with Calliope um, into the night. 
So when we first see Calliope, um, it's kind of on the splash page where we have the name of the issue and the um, credits listed for uh, the art and the writing. Um, and there's specific direction that Neil gave in the script here. Um, and then uh, I have additional information on what Kelly Jones actually did to kind of to do this art. But Neil had specifically wanted uh, the art to be uh, that she has a beautiful face with deep cheekbones. She's a goddess after all, and a thin body. She looks as if she's been starved for a couple of weeks. We can see the outline of her hip bones and not quite count her ribs. She's naked. She looks very vulnerable. This is the vulnerability of nakedness. If you've ever seen any photos of famine victims or concentration camp victims, there's a point at which nakedness totally ceases to titillate. Instead, just arouses feelings of pity. So he specifically makes reference to um, famine victims or photos from concentration camps. Um, specifically in um, The Sandman Command Companion by High Bender, there's an excerpt with an interview with Kelly Jones where he talked about um, how he um, tried to depict this. And he said specifically that he looked at photographs of soldiers from the Civil War, specifically one set that showed the soldiers kind of healthy before they were headed off to war, and then another uh, photographs of, alongside that of how soldiers looked when they were in Andersonville, which was the um, prison camp in the Confederacy had the Confederacy had in Georgia um, that was um, likened to be like hell on earth. So I think that Kelly does a really good job here showing someone who looks naked and vulnerable and kind of sympathetic and still very identifiable as kind of a human figure, but also just off enough that it's uh, kind of disturbing and it's almost painful to, to look at the art. Um, I will also note that apparently Kelly's originally drawing original drawing for this. Um, she was even skinnier than she is in this picture, but the, so the editors decided that, uh, to make her a little less skinny um, when the inking was done. Yeah, I can see the the impulse to to do that, but I, I almost wish that they had had stuck with the original drawing, and I, I I would like to see that someday. I don't know if that's available anywhere because although she does look very much like someone from one of these concentration camps or prison camps, uh, I, I think maybe still not enough. So I mean, I look because I really like that move to show us viscerally that. Although she is the title character of this story, she's going to be free at the end, that she's a, a, a victim here and that it's it's brutal, right? The treatment of her is brutal. And we're going to get that in the plot and we're going to see a lot of brutal stuff here. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think there was a need to, to, to tamper down on that, to tame any of that. I would have liked to have seen that the way that uh, Kelly Jones drew it. And and in fact, I mean, on that note, we should we should talk about what is actually going to happen next, because this is the part where the, the story really takes this brutal, ugly, awful turn, right? Because what Madoc does is he takes Calliope home and he rapes her. And I want to be clear and, and give credit to Gaiman that that is the verb that he uses, right? There is no softening of this. There is no sense at all that Madoc is the hero of this story, the protagonist of this story, that Madoc is someone we should be rooting for ever in any way. He is a horrible, awful, ugly person, and Gaiman is upfront about that here and clear with his his verb usage. But he does explore Madoc's own feelings here in this moment. He tells us that Madoc was nervous about doing this, but he had to, and he had to tell himself that this 
person in front of him isn't a human being, even if she looks like a human and has some other human qualities, that she's a, a, a supernatural creature, essentially. And so he has to convince himself, and he does convince himself, that this is morally okay to do. Though he does then also worry that maybe Fry has tricked him and that this really is just a regular human being and that he's going to do something awful to a human and that he's going to get punished for it. Uh, I do think that the inference here then as well is that Fry has given him these instructions that he's told Madoc that this is what you have to do to get the inspiration from Calliope, which then also means that Fry has also been raping her in order to get numinous inspiration from her. So she has been being not just imprisoned, not just held against her will, but raped repeatedly for decades. And this does work because afterwards, Madoc gets into a flow state and he knocks out the first two chapters of a novel and starts on the third. And we will talk about the the novel in in a minute, but I do think we have to pause here and emphasize that this is a story about imprisonment and rape. It's a story about one person torturing another for his own profit. And, And I guess the backstory of someone else who has done exactly that. It, it is, and it's 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 brutal in its depiction um, and kind of unflinching in the way that it presents it. And specifically, when Calliope is first introduced to Richard, she asks Erasmus Fry, you know, whether Richard was there to watch them. So, which implies that that has been a thing that has happened in the past too. That um, the Erasmus has has on a number of occasions, perhaps while raping Calliope, uh, also had people watch for his own amusement i guess or whatever so and it's kind of a weird juxtaposition because we have this first rape first in a number of rapes that richard maddox will do richard maddox will do to calliope uh, on panel and immediately after that we have him in this pose just like as relaxed as can be and quite content with himself. And this is actually where there's the description, as you said, Glenn, of him thinking and or thinking to himself, you know, for a moment there, I thought that perhaps I'd been tricked and I was actually just raping a teenage girl. But luckily I'm not raping a teenage girl. I'm raping a thousands of year old woman as if that's somehow better. Uh, but immediately then he gets ideas and starts writing them into his um, computer. On a lighter note, um, apparently this panel is almost perfectly lined up with photos that Neil had provided to Kelly of what his writing space and study looked like, except for there's not a Groucho Marx picture in it. But uh <laughs> Yeah, well, let's uh, let's let's talk about the the novel that we do see him writing here because we actually get two paragraphs of it on the screen. Uh, it's the screen of a word processor, in fact. Uh, which uh, I should say too that this study that, that we we see here in the art this is pretty amazing. If you're feeling nostalgic for 1986, but uh, let's uh, let's read what's on the screen. So here's here's what Gaiman has: Chapter three, colon, and some in velvet gowns. Your face, he said to her. What have you done to your face? Marion shrugged. I wanted to look on the outside like I feel on the inside, she said simply, not putting down the knife. And so I know that the the title of this comes from a nursery rhyme, Brent, but I'm hoping that Klinger has some more to say about this bit of writing that we see here because it really seems familiar to me, but I am not sure why I could not place this. Yeah, Leslie Klinger in the Annotated Sandman notes that the dialogue uh, in the script um, he attributes it to borrowing from 
the apocryphal gospel according to Thomas, who recounted that Jesus said something along the lines of, because obviously translated multiple times, quote, why do you wash the outside of the cup? Don't you understand that the one who made the inside is also the one who made the outside? Which is even more disturbing, I think. Yes, <laughs> you're yeah. Thinking about, um, here you have something, and um, and we should mention that uh, there is a thank you um, in the um, collection for Dream Country that specifically thanks Clyde Barker um, as if he's connected somewhat to the story. And this is kind of Clyde Barker type imagery I'm getting from what Maddock is writing in terms of someone with a knife who perhaps has cut themselves to make themselves look like the way people look if they don't have skin. And if you're seeing the inside of them, it's very kind of Hellraiser and kind of, you know, that kind of aesthetic. Um, so to couple that with phrasing things in a way of how Jesus is talking to disciples is just really extra kind of off-putting of layering those kind of imageries. Yeah, that is not what I thought you were gonna gonna say. That wasn't the sort of inspiration or, or adaptation that I was thinking of here. I thought this was gonna be from some other horror story. In part, I was thinking uh, some of it felt a little bit like something from uh, the Robert W. Chambers collection, the, the King and Yellow. It also felt a little bit like the the uh, uh, Tim Burton Batman, right? Where where the Joker is doing this sort of thing to the the, the faces of of women uh, around him as as well. Clyde Barker is going to get name dropped in this issue as well. And I know in the wrap up for the doll's house, we were talking about uh, why Clive Barker had even written that introduction. And uh, um, I, I guess maybe he and Neil Gaiman actually had uh, some bit of a relationship. Is that your, your sense of it here? I mean, that's my sense of it. I don't have a strong sense on some of the background there, but uh, yeah, I believe that uh, they were familiar and Clive Barker certainly was, Kind of in his prime during this time period. Um, some people have kind of attributed that the um, Richard Maddock is kind of a dark version of Clive Barker. Not that Clive Barker raped any muses. Um, but that kind of having the success both as a writer and then in film, which we'll see later in the um, issue, um, is similar to Clyde Barker's story, where he um, is a prolific writer um, of particularly horror, and um, that also then that translated into uh, lots of film credits associated with horror films then as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't really know Clive Barker's work very well. I've read a few things and, you know, I've seen some of the movies, I guess probably everybody has. But my understanding is that that he and Stephen King, at least a little bit, felt like they were in some kind of rivalry, some kind of competition with each other. So maybe we can see some of that sort of drive uh, at, at play here as well, though, you know, the circumstances are are very different. Yeah, and that's very interesting. I mean, if we're thinking about uh, Gaiman reflecting here on writers, on writing, but maybe especially on the business of being a writer, what it takes to uh, to make a living at this, uh, let alone to become wealthy at it, to uh, you know succeed, to get fortune and glory as a writer. Because Gaiman, although he's he's you know doing well, the Sandman is being well received, and he's got a lot of other story credits at this point, is still young in his career at the point of writing this, and certainly has not attained that level of fortune and glory, the level that he has now for sure. And this is perhaps a young writer looking at at the way this business works and uh, maybe cringing 
at it and in some in writing this story as, as something of you know, maybe a, a metaphor of what he sees when he looks at some of these really successful, uh, lucratively successful, financially successful writers. I think it's still somewhat true today um, that not only in terms of monetary compensation, but also prestige, um, writing things that become films is, is regarded in many circles as, you know, kind of a pinnacle, um, at least on the monetary side of success for writers. Um, but I think even more so if you think about the way things were in the late 80s and early 90s, in the early 90s where television, we still hadn't entered the the latest, you know, golden age of television. So while there was a lot of good television, it wasn't necessarily regarded as particularly good television. And there wasn't nearly the heaps and heaps of it that we have in the last couple decades. Um, Cause you didn't have the prestige dramas and comedies coming out of, you know, um, HBO and the premium cable channels. It was, this is way before any streaming networks. So it very much was just, you know, there's what you're making in print, um, which can get prestige, particularly in the literary community, which we'll get to a little bit later. But in terms of monetary compensation, there's writing for television, and that's very much kind of regarded more more the way that kind of pulp fiction, I think, is regarded in terms of, not the film, um, in terms of kind of castaway, like, you know, writing a script for, you know, whatever television show is not this, the pinnacle of success the way that writing for film would be uh, writing for the movies that that's really, you know, to have your name um, emblazoned up there and also then to be able to do the talk show circuit as someone who writes for these films, kind of the, the glitz of Hollywood, um, which still has a fair amount of luster today, but I think it had far, far more 30 years ago now when this was written. Absolutely. There's the, the romanticism of it and, and, and game in you know, writing comics, I guess is, more similar to writing for for TV, certainly more similar to writing for TV the way that it was in the the eighties and the nineties that we're we're thinking about before prestige TV, in that that's a cool gig if you can get it. I mean, you know, if, if anyone's hiring, please. You know, uh, it's a it's a it's an interesting. It's a fun job to do, though. It's also a very stressful job, but it does pay well, and you are getting paid to tell stories, which is a really awesome thing to do if you you can get it, whether that's writing for TV or for comics. But that's the thing is that it is a job that you have a minimum level of output that you have to get through uh, on a regular cycle, whether it's it's weekly or monthly, but you've got a daily word count that you know you have to hit and you've got all these pressures. It's very different from the romantic notion of what it is to write a novel, which is that uh, you uh, you know go to your second home in the Isle of Skye, which is actually what Neil Gaiman does now, and uh, bang out a novel in four months and then sell that and then uh, spend a few months traveling around the world to to bookshops and uh, speaking engagements to to sell to to hawk the the, the novel to people and then uh, hopefully it gets optioned and hopefully then it gets made into a film and then the you know the bank account grows right there's a, a romantic notion of what it means to write a novel especially one that uh, is financially successful and that gets turned into a film that is so different from the writing job that Gaiman has as a, a you know writing the salmon doing the comics and uh, it's it is interesting to see that of course he has become that successful writer who can do that. But here he is, here's his younger self, uh, looking at that and looking at the type of drive and ambition that it takes to to get to that level and seeing some ugliness there. Uh, returning to the story, um, so while Richard is busy typing his Clyde Barker-esque um, novel, 
Um, we are finally left with Calliope and kind of her alone in a room on a hardwood floor. And she beseeches the support of um, her mother in the form of, of the ladies three um, here to perhaps provide her some relief from her suffering. This is really interesting, right? I mean, this is the 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 story shifting to Calliope's perspective, right? So she's going to become an active character in the story that bears her name for the first time. And and I think too, this scene is taking place at exactly the same time that Madoc is in his study writing. So this is the immediate aftermath of being raped by Madoc, uh, raped by Madoc for the first time, we should say. And and, like, and there's some really interesting stuff here from, uh, you know, a sort of classics perspective as well that we'll get to in a minute. A uh, lot of names here, right? She, she calls on, she says that the mother of the Kamenai, uh, the three gracious ladies who are named Meliti, Iodi, and Nimi, uh, and they do appear. And I, I think we have seen them before, right, Brent? You say these are the, the three and one. Uh, this is the same art, or at least something very much like it, that we have seen before, right? It's a maid, it's a matron, and a crone. And what Calliope wants is their help, right? She wants them to free her. And we get a lot here about why they can't. And they explain that what Fry did in capturing her, while it was awful, it was legal. He he followed the rules. And so Calliope is bound until Fry himself undoes it. And on top of that, they say there are a few, only a very few of the old powers, that's capitalized, that's a proper noun, willing or able to meddle in mortal affairs these days. So there's no one with any more power than, than she has or they have who can take up her case. And then they go on, the Kamenai here, they go on to tell Calliope, and also us, of course, right, that many gods have died, uh, and also aspects of other gods have been lost forever. It's only the endless who never die, and even they've been having a tough time of it lately, and that's a, a nod to what's going on in Preludes and Nocturnes. And this thought, of course, too, thinking of the endless, brings the Kamenai to Dream, right, because it uh, turns out that Dream and Calliope, they were a thing once, they even had a child together. Orpheus. Uh, we'll talk about Orpheus later, eventually. Uh, but when Orpheus died violently, Dream and Calliope then had a serious falling out. Now they hate each other. This seems to be a recurring thing with Dream. Uh, and so she actually says that she wouldn't even accept his help if he were to offer it. But hey, no worries, because Dream can't help her anyway, because hey, this is happening at the same time that he's imprisoned. Uh, and so this story, right, we learned here, I mean, I guess we kind of already knew that because we've been told repeatedly that it's 1986, three years before Dream escapes in 1989. But this story is a prequel of sorts, at least this part of it is. But the end result of all of this is that she is stuck here. Uh, though when the, the Cam and I leave her, Calliope says that she really would accept Dream's help, right? She'll take help from anyone at this point because this existence is awful. And I, and I, and I think that we can assume that she has been enduring this, of course, for, for decades, but that she has known that Fry is getting old. She's been witnessing this and that she's been thinking that her release is imminent. It's coming soon. Just a, a few more months, a few more years, certainly not more than a decade. And now that's turned out not to be true. She's been given to this younger person again. So 
perhaps this might go on indefinitely. And so I think she's she's hit despair again here. Uh, and there is a lot to talk about here. I do want to put my classicist hat on and talk about all these mythological characters in a bit. But I think first, let's do the, the metaphysics of this speculative world, because we learn here that gods are real, or at least some of them are. They can die. Aspects of themselves can be lost. This is a huge idea for Neil Gaiman, right? He uses this all over his work. It's something I just have come to expect as being something that's in his work. But this is the earliest version of it, right? I think it is um, that I recall. And yeah, it, it lays out a lot of uh, intricate work here. And I, I, what you're probably going to launch into next with your classicist hat is also that he's blending together a lot of Roman and Greek kind of myths and creating in some ways like a monomyth where all of the potential gods and other supernatural uh, beings uh, from any particular religion all kind of have and perhaps some still do exist simultaneously to each other and in some cases they are combined into uh, a single entity and in some cases there's just multiple versions of things um, in this case there's kind of multiple versions of the muses at play here right yes absolutely and and yeah, this idea that there are yeah different aspects i mean this actually threw me for a loop because the idea of there being different aspects of gods is something that's inherent in Mediterranean paganism or you know Greek and Roman religion, but also including Egyptian and Carthaginian, really all of the Mediterranean religions that we know about, the, the ancient Mediterranean religions that we know about, where deities will have different aspects of them. And you, you'll put a name, you'll attach another name or another word to the name of the god to be invoking that particular aspect. And sometimes that will be a place uh, I'd be like, this is the version of Zeus or Athena or Hercules, who is present in this place, who guards over this location, right? Our city or this spring or something like that. Uh, but also this can be the different attributes that they have. So you'll get a special name for, uh, say, uh, Artemis or, or Diana in her capacity as uh, the virgin, but you'll also get a different name or can get a different name for her in her capacity as the the huntress or the, the god of the moon or something like that. And sometimes those can be regarded as almost totally different characters. Uh, and this is one of the things that we mean by aspects. But I, I did eventually realize that Gaiman here is doing what you're saying, which is that's not quite what he's meaning. What he's meaning is that that Artemis and Diana actually are just the Greek and the Roman uh, aspect of the same thing, and that uh, there's a Norse version of that and an Egyptian version of that, or at least that there can be, right? That there is this sort of, uh, you know, the syncretism is what this is called, right? This idea that, ah, it's all, uh, there's all the same pantheon. We just call them different names and we know different stories about them. They've revealed themselves differently to different people, but it really is all the, the same thing. This was a pretty big thing, I think, that was going on in general in fantasy. I, I think of this as a really a, a 90s thing, but I think it's an 80s and 90s thing. And it's certainly something that Gaiman is really at the core of here. And he notes in the script that, um, you know, as he was looking into background on the muses, he noted kind of the older version tales of the muses where they're identified as just these three. And then he thought about, well, the numerology of three times three being the nine. Um, but also then he envisioned the idea that then these three are kind of the, 
I mean, literally the references to mother here, but mothers of the other muses, which kind of differentiates itself somewhat from a lot of the actual mythology um, that was pres- that is presented to us outside of the Sandman continuity. Um, but here we get the sense that in some ways there is kind of a mother-parent relationship, although it's not quite clear that that means that they somehow gave birth to the nine muses, but at least there's some kind of familiar relationship there. Um, and we've seen elsewhere where there's a lot of discussion about the importance of family and about um, also the limitations of what family members maybe are allowed under whatever rules has been have been alluded to are supposed to be doing it to other members of the family. The idea that you're su- supposed to perhaps support your family, but at the very least, you're not supposed to harm members of your family. Yeah, and I, I went over it pretty quickly. Uh, we are going to eventually talk at greater length about this detail that we learn here. But hey, Dream has a kid or had a kid anyway, right? Orpheus is yeah. his dad. Uh, Orpheus, a real figure from classical mythology. We will explicate him more uh, because he is, uh, you know, in another episode because he is going to become important to this. But that's just kind of dropped in here. But that's a pretty big deal uh, to to learn that. Uh, did you see anything there, Brent, about what Gaiman was reading? Like, what book did he get this this idea of the three muses from? I'm interested in that. Um, I don't think I saw references to specifically any what text he was referring to. Um, there's a lengthy bit in the script, which is also then repeated in the annotated Sandman. Through material on the muses, uh, nine of them, three times three, I discovered there was an earlier version of the muses when there were only three, this three, and it made more sense that they'd come from an earlier triple version of the muses than that, as in other versions of the legends. They were the daughters of Zeus and... Namazni, I'm going to butcher that, uh, memory. <laughs> well, let's talk about the the muses, because this this idea that there are three or that there are nine is a, a pretty big deal if you're you know, doing uh, classical mythology, which is something that I really, really love. Uh, I've never actually gotten to teach an entire class on it. I have begged many times, uh, something I did as a, a grad student, but uh, they always gave it to, to some other grad student to be able to, to either be a teaching assistant or to get to teach the class entirely. Though, when I do get to teach Western Civ, uh, I do this a lot uh, in uh, when we're doing Greece. And, and in part, I do this, I mean, I do it because I love it, but I also do it because it's something uh, students, at least the the generation of students I've got right now are super into because they all grew up with Percy Jackson. And so they really love to, to, to talk about this stuff. And it's a real gateway into thinking about ancient Greece is to look at their religious culture and to start with that by talking about the classical mythology that they really like. But let's, uh, let's start with the idea of muses generally, because I think in our culture today, we tend to think of a, a muse as an artistic or a creative inspiration. Uh, the Greeks did regard the muses this way too, Sort of, uh, you know. And anyway, sort of. I'll I'll, I'll say uh, the word itself is Greek, though scholars disagree about the etymology of the word. And the etymology of Greek words is something that we try to use in order to understand the development of Greek religion, because there is a dark age in ancient Greece. This period uh, following the the Bronze Age collapse, uh, and uh, until we get to to Homer, where we just don't really have a lot of writing, and there is a lot of development of this religion during that time, the etymology is something that we can use to try to understand what is transpiring in those centuries. Uh, so it's a big deal that we don't know, that we don't understand, at least not now, what the etymology of this word 
is, that there are uh, several different, or really maybe two, I'll say, different alternatives, each which would lead to uh, different understandings of what people uh, circa 1000 BC were thinking about these muses, where we know quite a bit about what people circa 500 BC are thinking about them. Uh, but in any case, muse is not a proper noun. It's uh, it's just a regular noun. It means art or uh, skill in making something. It can mean craft. And so the muses are then a personification of an abstraction, right? In the same way that uh, specific rivers, specific uh, forests and mountains and springs will have a god or a goddess affiliated with them who is the embodiment, the personification of that thing. Uh, also, you know, it's like the endless, right? <laughs> They're the personification of an abstraction. But yeah, generally, if you open up a textbook uh, for high school, maybe even college level courses on Greek mythology, you are going to learn that there are nine muses, their sisters, you'll get their names, you'll learn that they correspond to tragedy and history and astronomy and epic poetry and, and, and so on. Uh, Calliope is epic poetry, of course. But that is really only a little bit true. It's kind of a lie that we've all agreed on when we write these textbooks or use them in pop culture as well. Uh, for one, who is on this list of nine and who is not on this list of nine, and then also which attribute goes with which name is not at all consistent over the 1,200 years that we have people writing about the muses and, and worshiping the muses as well. Uh, this is maybe, I think, to use an actual comic book analogy, right? This is a bit like the Avengers. Uh, sometimes Wolverine is on the team, even though he's actually supposed to be one of the X-Men, but just don't worry about it, right? That's the, the, the idea here. Uh, though maybe it would be like if sometimes Captain America was the one with the flying armor suit, right? Because even the attributes that they have can shift around from place to place and time to time. And then, yeah, the other thing that we should point out is that the idea that there are nine muses is itself only one configuration of the muses in both Greek and Roman religion. There is this other possibly older, I mean, I think Gaiman was really definitely thinking of it as older, but that's you know, possibly older tradition that there are three of them and that what they represent uh, or are in charge of is actually way more abstract than what the nine muses get, where they get specific art forms or uh, sciences, uh, specific skill sets. The three muses are, are, are responsible for, for more uh, abstract things and what those are can shift around depending on what source we're talking about. And and these, right, these are the three women that Gaiman has, Calliope, invoke here, the the, the one who are three, the, the, the matron, the crone, and the maid who show up here in this scene. And they do have two different names, right, to, so that we can distinguish these configurations of the, the muses. The, the nine are the Olympian muses, which, you know, Olympus is where, where Zeus and the Olympian gods live. And then these other three are the Boeotian muses. Uh, Boeotia is a, a place in Greece. This is where they seem to have been worshipped first. But as I said, their names are also not always consistent. Uh, the, the ones that Gaiman uses here, uh, these are the most common. Uh, and I will say that even some of the texts actually list four of them rather than three. So none of it is the neat package that we get in textbooks or, you know, that my students learned in the Percy Jackson series. And, and then one last thing that I want to say here, and, and then I'll, you know, stop holding us up here. You know, haven't actually gotten to teach class in a long time because of the plague. So I, I got really excited about this. Uh, but the word Kamenai that Gaiman uses here to refer to them, the, the three here, uh, Calliope calls the three women, uh, who, the women who are one, the mother of the, the Kamenai, um, and then refers refers to herself as their their daughter. And Kamenai is a Latin word. It's not a Greek word. 
it does refer to a grouping of Roman goddesses, um, and they did have similar attributes to the muses, but it's a, a different thing. But Roman poets would then use the word kamenai rather than mousai uh, when they were translating something from Greek, like, say, the Odyssey, for example. And this is because they needed their words to meet their metrical needs, which are a little bit, well, the, the meter is the same in Greek and Latin, but the way that the languages fit in them is a little bit different. Uh, but the Kamenai are really a group of Roman goddesses with different names and different functions, and they're not really a part of this deal at all. And in the tradition of the Olympian muses, or traditions really, I should say, the the, the, the nine muses, the Olympian muses, uh, going back to Hesiod's poem on the genealogy of the gods, uh, their mother, uh, Nemusina, uh, is how I'll pronounce that, Brent, though also my Greek pronunciation, not always the best. Um, she's the goddess associated with memory, as you said. And as far as I know anyway, there's no tradition in which the Boeotian muses, the three that we get here, are the mother or mothers of the Olympian muses. And it sounds like uh, what from what you've read to us out of the script, Brent, and, and from Klinger, that this is definitely an invention of Gaiman's, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it, it's really clever. Um, and again, it may not be, and it, it doesn't indicate in the script um, or the added material that Klinger has, that the muses are necessarily the kind of biological mothers of the other muses, as much so as, you know, these are abstract these are personifications of abstract ideas, and in some ways, ideas lead to other ideas, and so that could just be what's at play here. But it's kind of the fun combination, as if there isn't already lots of combination between Greek and Roman uh, mythologies, but this is kind of a nice little blending of those things, um, which I think we'll see far more of as we go, um, where things are pulled of even within um, the next couple issues, I think we'll see um, you know, more discussion of gods and goddesses from uh, elsewhere in the world. And I really like that he's trying to make a coherent genealogy out of this. I mean, what he's doing is retconning, right? I mean, which is, of course, a classic comic book thing to be doing. But it is also what every textbook on Greek mythology ever is doing, uh, especially geared towards uh, high school students and, and, and maybe early undergraduate classes, where you're not trying to show the, the nuance of things. You're trying to present a sort of simplistic or, or at least something akin to simplistic package of information for students. And so all of the real genealogy genealogies that you'll see in those types of books are some bit of retconning. Some bit of retconning has happened to come up with that family tree because for every decision you make about who's the father of whom, who's the mother of whom, who's the sibling, who's in this group of deities, who's in that group of deities, there's going to be another text or some image on a vase or a, a bas-relief sculpture somewhere that does it differently. And so that's what Gaiman is doing here himself. He's just continuing something that really actually happens even in the classical, the ancient period itself, uh, and something that modern scholars do all the time. Gaiman's just taking it maybe one step further and it really trying to make a kind of universal genealogy of every god and goddess who's ever been created. And I think it's a brilliant move. And as you say, yeah, we are going to see this as we go on where he's really going to expand what's uh, what's involved in this. And it's going to be pretty awesome. I'm excited to get to that. Yeah. And I think it's, it's fun when you see um, writers do this, where they take things that are 
you know, from other stories. And obviously in comics, you see this, in comics, you see this all this time where there's crossovers and, you know, the major continuities that the major franchises have. But you also see in writing elsewhere where someone is just, you know, borrowing from, you know, here we have the muses and there's various descriptions of what those might be, but there's kind of a sense that the reader brings as to what that means to it. And then when you're putting that with, you know, a character Sandman who is, you know, wholly made up by Neil Gaiman um, and the artists who work with him. And then you say, okay, now Sandman, this new thing I'm introducing had a relationship with this other thing that you kind of know what it is. It kind of nicely pulls it together. I'm kind of reminded of, um, there are many times that, I mean, a lot of writers have done this, but I always think of HP Lovecraft where he'll throw in mention of fake texts, like the Necronomicon is the <laughs> famous one alongside real texts. And so it'll get the reader to like, think like, oh, well, maybe the Necronomicon is real, or at least even when you know it's not, it, it it kind of grounds things partially in reality in that what you're reading about is something that is supposed to be depicting a world that is very similar to ours in that way. And and we have all thought the Necronomicon was real at some point or another and tried to get our library to get a copy for us, right? <laughs> so after the uh, the three-in-one, the, the mothers leave, um, and Calliope, as you said, has indicated by the end of that even, like, look, even if it's uh, Oniris, even if it's Sandman who, who comes and rescues me, I'll accept help from anywhere at this point. And then she is thinking to herself and remembering back when uh, Erasmus Fry managed to uh, capture her um, when she is um, bathing yeah, that's right. Yeah, Mount Helicon is their like special house that they that they that they have, and there's this spring where they all they all hang out and bathe. This is this goes all the way back to to Hesiod, who's one of the earliest uh, Greek uh, writers that we've got, Greek poets that we've got. And one of the things that we see here is uh, I think really interesting, right? Is it shows us that the muses have scrolls that they carry around with them that are numinous, mystical, magical in some way. And Calliope set hers down so she could bathe, which suggests that although they're magical, they're not waterproof. Um, and that they also don't have like, you know, some sort of uh, uh, endless like magical pocket or, or sack or dice bag that you get in D&D. Uh, and so because she set it down, right, Fry gets a hold of it, he burns it, and that's what makes her his slave. Uh, this is a really interesting idea that the, the sort of thing that can in prison you can bind you is something that you're actually carrying around with you this is maybe a, a variation on the idea that if you know someone's true name or at least uh, you know a, a magical numinous creatures true name you can get power over them but here it's this this scroll i also thought it was interesting that fry asks her which of the muses she is because it suggests that he knew she was a muse uh, and maybe even he was hanging around mount helicon because he wanted to capture a muse uh, but also that he didn't care which one it was. And so he wasn't here because he wanted to be a famous writer the way that Richard Madoc certainly wants to be, right? That he would have been just as happy if he'd captured any of the muses. So he could have gone on to become a really awesome astronomer or a really awesome dancer, uh, that those things would have suited him just fine. Uh, there's there's, I know, there's a lot of implied interesting backstory about Erasmus Fry, who I don't think we're ever going to see again, but uh, there's definitely some spinoff stories there that I would be interested in reading. And maybe there's some fan fiction about him that uh, listeners can point us to. 
the art here I think is uh is some really well done stuff by um Kelly at the top of this page uh, by Kelly Jones you know it's Calliope where um she is remembering back to other times um and kind of just how creepy young Erasmus Fry looks and he looks almost like the Joker um, yeah. in some ways with just kind of the smirk and then he's holding you know um plant in one hand uh, and then in the other hand, holding the scroll and then the depiction of the scroll itself burning, which reminded me, I, I don't know whether this was intentional or not. It reminded me of those seeing like the Olympic torch, like because it's that length of kind of a document and the way that he's holding it. It's as if he's got Olympic torch. He's just holding kind of horizontally. But uh, there's some really kind of great and creepy art here. Kelly Jones has drawn Batman, right? Although I don't know if that was before or after this, but you're, you're, you're spot on. Erasmus Fry looks exactly like Joker. And I, I, it is, I mean, the art, some of the art here is pretty good, but I will say him looking exactly like the Joker kind of sucked me out of the story a little too much. Yeah, no, um, I believe he had uh, written Batman prior to this, um, or written, he had uh, done the art for Batman prior to, and maybe even during this. And a lot of art that I have by him, it was from his pretty lengthy run on Batman, um, which was really good. But uh, um, particularly if you like kind of the billowy look to the cape, which we see sometimes in um, a lot of these shots where we, particularly if you look at people's sleeves um, throughout, then uh, just imagine that as being like the sleeves that you'd see on um, Batman or the Joker um, <laughs> or um, even Commissioner Gordon, frankly, um, where it's just um, things are a little abnormal and the proportions are slightly off. Um, also, just he has a fun way of doing hair um, where it just it always looks wild and out of control most of the time. <laughs> so then we're taken out of her remembering this story. Um of, of how she was captured to um, Richard Maddock coming in because he's decided that it's time to rape her again because he's done really well. Um, and he references um, and he comes in to tell her like, hey, great news, as if at this point she wants to hear great news from him. Um, I finished the novel. It's called My Love She Gave Me Light. Two drafts in five weeks and it's all good stuff. And she said she's pleased. Can, can you let me go? And then he says no. Um and then he makes a, a reference to um, uh, Sex Pistols, in which um, John Lydon had made a comment about how sex was nothing more than two and a half minutes of squelching noises. And he says, um, it's time for two and a half, or yeah, two and a half minutes of squelching noises. So he's about to rape her again. But uh, I do want to talk about the title of his novel here. My Love She Gave Me Light. In the script, Neil notes that it's a reference to kind of an older um, English riddle. Uh, Leslie Klinger in the Annotated Sandman um, mentions where it was recorded in a volume in 1910, but it, it, it predates that by some period of time, and I don't have information about from when it comes. But uh, the full riddle, which Neil mentions, uh, is already in the final of the four issues of the Books of Magic limited series, um, uh, is... Um, and this is at the very end of time, by the way, um, spoilers for books of magic, Tim Hunter ends up at the end of time at one point and he meets a jester type figure who tells them this riddle. Um, and the riddle is I sat with my love and I drank with my love and my love. She gave me light. I'll give any man a pint of wine that'll read my riddle, right? Um, and apparently the answer to the riddle is. I sat in a chair made of my love's bones, drank from her skull, and saw by the light of a candle made from her fat. So it's really just the fact that he's decided his novel is My Love She Gave Me Light. And it's a you know reference to this riddle about someone who has 
killed their quote unquote lover and used their body even after death, you know, to help light things for them. Um, it's just very well done and kind of intentionally in a good way, cringy kind of horror. Yeah, and it, it certainly is on theme, right? This is what Madoc himself is doing co- to Calliope. He's using her body, uh, you know, against her will. He's doing horrible violence to her so that he can have something that he wants, uh, but then is excited to share his accomplishments with her as if they're partners in this and can't really understand or, or chooses not to understand, perhaps, that she's a victim that he's abusing her, that he's violating her, that she's not she's not here to help him. She's doing this because she has no choice. She's a, 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 a prisoner, but he is trying to live in some kind of de- delusion about this. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure I want to spend a whole lot of time on the metaphysics of, of rape, which I guess also is not a phrase I ever thought I would say, but I have to believe that this is not how Homer was getting his inspiration from Calliope. So surely there are alternatives here, right? That Madoc doesn't have to be doing this. The implication normally from, normally, from uh, what I recall of mythology is, Gronim uses, is that you want to woo them. Um, And there's certainly been lots of even good kind of comedy films about this, um, where, you know, if, if they grant you favor and it need not involve sex in any way, shape, or form, (laughs) let alone, um, the need to to take forcibly um by by raping someone um versus just calliope just giving him an inspiration in some way either by just being near or perhaps the way that dream is able to communicate dreams to people where it's just something that he can just kind of flip on like a light switch um the implication is perhaps the muses can do that as well and I do want to mention, as a callback here, um, the book that Erasmus Fry said he was particularly fond of that he wanted Maddock to maybe put in a word about bringing back into print was entitled uh, Here Comes a Candle. So again, it's just these are the works that, um, again, are directly referencing the fact that they are stealing the light, literally kind of the life force of this woman to power their art, which is... Um, kind of a really twisted way to go about getting your inspiration. Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, I hadn't thought this deeply about this. So I'm, I think it's it's awesome that you've spotted this and have brought this up because, I mean, is this suggesting to you that the inspiration, the, the numinous inspiration that Calliope is giving to Fry in the past and that now to, to Maddox and the present of the story is itself responsible for this, this motif? teeth that they share, that that the inspiration that she's giving him, uh, giving the, the two of them, uh, it contains within it this, the sense of, the, the trauma of being imprisoned and then repeatedly raped, of being brutalized, of being abused by these men, that, that the inspiration that they're getting from her is colored by the way in which they are getting it. And that if they had wooed her and received inspiration, that they would have been writing different types of stories. Is, is, I hadn't thought about that before, but that seems maybe that's what's going on here. Yeah, that might be what's going on. And it's also just, I think, deeply troubling and perhaps, indic- perhaps indicative of kind of their lies that they're telling themselves about, you know, their level of guilt or culpability with any of this the way they've depicted it in which it's here comes a candle, not I went to a riverbank and stole a candle and then raped it for years. And my love, she gave me light is just a terrible 
maybe a terrible name for a story, frankly, anyways. But it's particularly terrible thing to say to someone before you rape them. Um, because it's just like, what do you know about love? And also, no one is willfully giving you anything. There's no... There's no consent here. It's it's all just you are taking. So, I mean, honestly, it should be I stole someone's light. <laughs> right. Well, because right. that is that is what they are doing. And, you know, this is going to have I mean, they are going to get their just due, both Fry and Madoc, though Madoc is he's going to have the success that that he wants. He's going to get the fortune and glory before he has a fall from that, though. It will be interesting, I think, when we get to the end to talk about exactly what the nature of that fall is. But but here we do get a, a montage of Madoc's ensuing career. There's some really great stuff in here. He, he writes several more best-selling and also critically acclaimed novels. That's, that's everybody's dream. Uh, and we see even some critics talking about whether a work of genre fiction could ever deserve the prestigious Booker Prize. Uh, this takes us back to uh, one of the themes of Forbidden Brides, which we did a few months ago. Uh, we also see him start a career in film and theater. Uh, he writes plays, and screenplays, even directs films. Uh, he publishes a book of epic poetry, which people don't do anymore. Uh, he wins award after award. And of course, all of it is really Calliope, and all of it is because he is raping Calliope. Uh, he does give an interview here in this montage as well, in which the, the interview compares him to other great writers. This is actually where Gaiman name drops Clive Barker. Uh, and I, I did then, you know, we talked a little bit or speculated a little bit already about their relationship. I was actually wondering if this had been written before DC got Barker to do the introduction to the, the doll's house. Uh, but it doesn't sound like Klinger had anything to, to say about this, uh, which is uh, a shame. Uh, but we also learned here that uh, Erasmus Fry is dead, that he poisoned himself, uh, and did this despite having the success, the the, the fortune and the glory that Madoc himself is chasing, also despite having the, the Bezoar, uh, and this is something that is going to, to come back. But uh, I think that what really drew me into this montage is the, the way that Gaiman is conceiving of Calliope's purview among the the muses here because for for poets like like Hesiod who I brought up a, a little while ago and and then Ovid who's the the really great uh Roman poet uh, actually a lot of our idea of Greek and Roman mythology comes from Ovid uh but also most other ancient writers for them Calliope was the muse of epic, uh, which is a specific type of poetry. This is what Homer wrote. It's what the Aeneid by Virgil is. Also what the, the Metamorphoses by Ovid is. We do not write epic poetry anymore today. We do have modes of writing that are the descendants of it, uh, though we don't write it. But I think about, I don't know, I mean, just I'd say maybe half of our story content, uh, maybe half of our content that is written as novels is the better way to put it. Uh, that's uh, descendant from epic or descended from epics, I should say. And I guess I would also say that what we are currently reading, The Sandman, right, would probably fall under that category. But there are several other types of writing that the ancients did and that we do. And those had their own muses, uh, comedy and tragedy, uh, meaning two types of plays. Those had separate muses, uh, separate from epic and separate from each other. Also, lyric poetry, which would correspond to like bits of pop music that we have, but also to another chunk of our content, like a big chunk of our content that is written as novels. And so Gaiman here has elided those divisions, and he's made Calliope the muse of storytelling, no matter which medium or genre it is, which is not the purview that she would have had uh, in antiquity. But at the same time, Gaiman does not seem to have made Madoc a great dancer, 
or a great astronomer or a great historian. So he's let those muses keep their domains, at least. And uh, that was an interesting move, I thought, as well. There's a reference we'll see later in the issue to um, Calliope saying that, you know, that she's doesn't really fit in the world as it is in the contemporary setting. I'm wondering if they're really in the world of the Sandman are really, you know, eight other muses that are still kind of in existence on, on slash interacting with this earth in a normal way, or if some have just kind of gone away and that's led to then maybe the expansion of the domains who are those who are left, or if, mortals understanding or lack thereof of kind of where the walls are has led to the walls themselves kind of crumbling or becoming, you know, more permissible to have things kind of flow through where Calliope just has more responsibility for things than they did before. And obviously there weren't uses for film or television before, I guess in some ways, comedy and tragedy, the the plays are kind of more akin to what you'd think about when you think about writing for comedy or writing for TV or for um, uh, stage. But I don't know that they need be. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I would expect. I I would think that those would be the muses of of film and television writing, though, of course, lots of art writers do both tragedy and comedy, though, of course, they did in antiquity as well, or at least some of them did anyway. And and I guess maybe that's one of the things that's that's going on here in this setup is that in ancient mythology and in antiquity, you didn't like get a muse assigned to you when you said, I would like to write an epic poem. Uh, I would like to write a tragedy. I would like to write a comedy. I would like to do some astronomy or write a history or, you know, comp- choreo- uh, do some great dance choreography. You would woo, you would invoke that specific muse to help you with that creative project. Then if you decide you want to go do something else that has a different muse, you'd 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 uh, try to woo that muse as well. But here, right, Madoc just has one muse uh that he's you know in, in prison it's a so it's a totally different setup but i i do also like your reading that the world has just changed around her and that this is one of the things that has changed around calliope is that that the the breakdown the divisions between these domains of the arts have brought some of them to together in ways that simply weren't uh the way that they were conceived of in you know what she thinks of as her heyday i guess and so you know it's just interesting to be thinking about gaiman uh, commenting on the business of writing and thinking about how the business of writing has a pretty long tradition right uh but that it also has changed over time so while Richard, or at this point, Rick uh, Maddock, is doing his various bits of press tours. Calliope is left alone in a caged room in his new mansion, and uh, she is visited finally by Morpheus, who is now free, now that we've caught up in the chronology, to um, when he has been freed. And they have uh, a little conversation about um, kind of her uh, being imprisoned and... And so she pleads with him and says, by the love I once had for you, by whatever you felt for me, please make him give me my freedom. Make him let me go. So there's not a lot we have here. We don't even have on screen originally Morpheus talking to her. We only have his word balloon, which is nice that they've set up at this point that the inverted colors of the or the shades of the black background with the white text means Morpheus. So we no longer need to see him on screen to know who's talking to her. Yeah, it's a really cool way to do that because we're not going to see the two of them together until the, the, the end of the story. And at this point, I have 
somehow decided that their story is a romance story uh, that I'm rooting for. Like, I've just decided that I want them to get back together. I don't know why that has happened. Perhaps just conditioning by, by romance stories in our own culture. And so I like that there's this sort of delayed gratification of seeing them on the, the page together. Uh, thinking about the, the timeline, uh, it is 1990. And now we're told that here in the story. And so at this point, this is after the events of well, obviously after the events of Preludes and Nocturnes, but it is also after the events of The Doll's House. So it is now, it has been a prequel, but it is now at this point a contemporary story that is advancing the Sandman saga. And we're given no indication as to when he becomes aware of her plight. And also we're given no indication during this conversation about whether he is going to help her out or not. I think we're kind of left that um, with the sense that he is, because his name is on the front of the comic and because uh, <laughs> she has suffered a lot. So I don't know if we would want to ever read a comic about Sandman again if he didn't take some kind of action. But also uh, we going through his kind of, you know, similar, although far less, far less severe plight um, of being trapped in the globe for for decades. Um, he knows what it's like to be imprisoned at the very least. He doesn't know what it's like to be repeatedly raped, but uh, the sense is that trouble's going to come. And so now we're kind of waiting as the audience, I think for Rick to get his comeuppance. And he is going to get his comeuppance. Uh, Dream is going to ambush him and uh, do some horrible things that we can talk about in in a minute. But I, I do want to invoke here, maybe we can t- talk about this at the end, but uh, thinking about the parallels between Calliope's story and Dream's story, the obvious one is that they've both been imprisoned and Dream now has some empathy for that and wants to help her, however it is that he actually heard about her. But I think that we also are going to want to think about Nada, because Dream has also been Rick Madoc. And it is actually, because as far as we know, Nada is still there. That's the last time we saw her, was she's still, still imprisoned in hell. in hell, being tortured right dream is not raping her but she is being tormented she's being tortured he's chosen for her to be imprisoned and and then to suffer that fate well uh but but we can carry on with this individual story here uh because yeah dream ambushes madoc uh, madoc reacts to him as if he's a, a burglar right? this is in his house but dream makes him understand <laughs> that uh, uh he knows about calliope and then he orders madoc to let her go but uh, madoc says that he just can't do that because without her he would not be able to write and really, you know, he just needs her for another year or two, right? A few more books. Dream not having this. And he calls him out for imprisoning and raping a person because uh, he, quote unquote, needs the ideas. And uh, hey, you know, uh, who else has the Numinous power to give people story ideas? Yeah, it's Dream. And so uh, he floods Madoc's mind with them. Uh, and this is where we'll pick up in, in a moment. But uh, I do want to talk about Dream's character arc and his motivation here, right? We've invoked the, the 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 fact that he's got empathy for Calliope because of having been imprisoned, right? I brought up Nada. Um, and, you know, maybe, I don't know, he's been thinking about how he's poorly treated his past relationships. Is he going to go free Nada after this? Uh, but also, right, we've seen... Him in the doll's house, we've seen his relationship with Hob Gadling, and you know we I think read uh, that story pretty definitively. That Dream would not have shown back up to their uh, centenary rendezvous at the uh, the White Horse Pub uh, if he had not been imprisoned. Right, that this experience changed him. So uh, I, I guess maybe Brent, really, what I'm asking is how 
where do you see his motivation here and, and what can we do with, uh, I don't know, trying to establish some kind of character arc for him? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely the fact that he's been in prison, because that's something that, you know, Neil himself in the script puts, has the three and one mention it earlier in the issue to remind the audience um, of the fact that he's kind of had similarly been imprisoned for decades. And we have seen, I think you're right, kind of him change a little bit in some regards as to Hob. In, in other regards, you know, he still is kind of dismissive of things. We didn't, you know, nothing particularly happened to Jed. He wasn't granted, like, sweet dreams going forward or anything after his horrific experience. And, you know, he left Port Lita Hall there, um, telling her that he would come back at some point for her baby. So um, he clearly has changed some. I wonder if some of the difference between, and I don't know if we'll ever get an answer to this, but um, the difference in the way that he regards Nada and the way he regards... Calliope isn't just kind of his own imprisonment, but also I wonder if he has kind of a slightly softer view of her in some ways because she also is the mother of his of their child. Um, and I wonder if that is influencing the way um, that he thinks of her, because um, it may be that he also thinks fondly in some ways of his son. We've never seen any mention it at this point. So um, he, he seems to have an estranged relationship with his son. So um, I wonder if that means that because he is deciding to not have the relationship with his son, that he is going to um, do additional favors. He isn't doing for other past lovers for Calliope. And we should also remember, of course, that we don't really know the story of Nada, right? What we get in tales of the what we get in tales in the sand is someone else telling a story about Dream. It is not from the omniscient uh, view or even the, just the, the the limited third person view of the the narrator, right? That is a story that other people in our world are telling about Dream that may have may be completely literally true, may have zero resemblance to the truth, uh, maybe somewhere in be in between, as we we talked about in that in that issue and and with rick richard maddock here he's not i mean he does tell richard you know that he's been terrible but he doesn't actually seek any kind of revengeance or revenge he just merely says you've been holding someone imprisoned against their will you shouldn't have done that i want you to let them go there's not an implication that there'll be a punishment at least from Sandman, delivered on Richard Maddock should he at that point just comply. Yeah, and I think compliance uh, is a big thing here, right? We should talk about the rules, right? Capital R here. This is a big thing that we've been tracking throughout the Sandman that's going to become a, a major plot point eventually because Dream either cannot or is choosing not to just magically free Calliope himself, that he is going to... I try to persuade Madoc to do it, and that doesn't work here. So now he's going to torture Madoc uh, to release her. He's going to torture Madoc until he releases her in accordance with the rules. And I do wonder, Brent, if you think that Dream is choosing to obey rules here that he could choose not to obey, or if he is actually constrained by the rules, if he really doesn't have the numinous supernatural power to free Calliope to break this bond that Madoc has over her. The implication with from him has always been that there are rules and that he cannot break them. It's never entirely clear whether the rules are just kind of... I don't want to say them 
say that they're societally agreed upon constraints because well, I don't know what society he's part of, but whether they're <laughs> just something that he's actually imposing himself and their rules that he thinks apply versus whether there is an external force that could force him to comply with those or would prevent him from, you know, magicking her out of the room or what have you. Um, it, it, it's really kind of hard to say. Um, and I think a lot of this is also built up in kinds of, in, in terms of kind of particularly folklore stories about, you know, agreements and bonds and that, you know, if, if you make a contract with the devil, you're bound by that contract unless there's something within it that lets you trick the devil to let you out of it. I think there's some of that kind of elements of story at play here. So uh, the implication is that the rules or the contracts themselves have power. And so if Richard Maddock does not say he releases Calliope, Dream can't simply like carry Calliope or convince someone else to like carry Calliope. You know, he can't have Hob go break into the mansion and, and rescue her, right? That there's maybe something that is holding her there that is be is beyond um his ability to affect. Yeah, it's a, it's a question, I guess, of whether or not it's a like something a law akin to the way we would say law of physics, meaning that you just you simply cannot. It is physically, or in this case, maybe metaphysically impossible for him to do what you're describing to just pick her up and leave with her, or it's a law in the sense of a prescription for behavior, the violation of which will incur some kind of penalty as a deterrent. And, and maybe it's a really serious penalty that you definitely don't want, but that you could still do the action, right? And and that's, that's the question. But I think I'm with you. I think in this case, it is something that is physically impossible, that this is a, a law of nature. It is a, 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 a characteristic of the properties of the cosmos here, and not something that he can choose or not choose to violate. But I, I, I think uh, I think some readers, some listeners to our show might feel differently about that. And that's something I'd be interested in, in uh, taking up on the forum as well. And there was a discussion in Doll's House about, you know, constraints on his ability to kill mortals. Um, and the fact that, you know, at times he's had to do that, but it's not really a preferable way to go. And that there might be kind of prices associated with that. And, and only when it's kind of the end of the quote unquote world. Um, that is facing some kind of annihilation is is something that even Dream will entertain doing, but obviously we've seen in instances with like with with Burgess where he is quite fine to inflict kind of endless suffering on someone in terms of kind of the waking nightmare. So even if he physically can't harm someone and end it, Richard Maddox's life, he certainly can, and as we see, kind of you know eventually kind of does make his life terrible for a while with what is within his domain and it seems that he could do that at any point he could start the whole conversation with like i'm going to show you you know how suffering is and then then enter the bargaining phase of like yeah <laughs> now you should release her versus he, he kind of tries the like direct of just like no let me give you the opportunity to finally at long last do the right thing when just confronted and once you say no to me, then he's going to follow up. And I can't tell if that's him trying to be, quote unquote, fair, or if it's also just um, even the matter of ego. Like, well, you know, Calliope asked to leave and you didn't let her leave because she asked, but I'll ask now. And if you deny me, then you're denying me. And I'm wondering how much of what Dream does do is partially kind of revenge for what Calliope experienced and part of it is also just his anger that you know he 
he's already visited on Burgess, and by this point, Burgess is you know likely not around to have it visited on him again. So this is just bringing up that, and it's him actually just lashing out in anger versus in some kind of kind of a tit-for-tat kind of response. Yeah, this is a great observation. I hadn't thought about this at all. I did think that uh, Dream was trying to uh, use his words in order to to get what he wanted here. But uh, there's an insinuation in the way that you're presenting this that actually he has set it up so that Madoc doesn't have all the information that he needs to make the right decision. And Dream kind of wants it that way. He wants him to say, no, I'm not going to free her so that he can then say, well, I tried, but uh, here you go. Uh, that he he wants to do this to him and yeah that's that's a darkness that I didn't read into the story but I think think you're yeah. right yeah it's also it's also a convenient excuse you know in a 24 page comic to finally have the person whose name is on the title uh, appear a couple different <laughs> times and not just once um, and also that we have a lot more kind of suspense of. First, the suspense after we see the word balloon and we know that Dream is going to do something and then Dream makes his appearance and then kind of the suspense of like, ooh, he was mad. What's he going to do? And it's us kind of waiting um, at that point, kind of uh, excited to see what thing Dream is going to do to Richard because we know it won't be good. And we know at this point we're probably on board for almost anything terrible happening to Richard. Yeah, and it, it, it is not good, but does happen, right? He's going to go insane. It, it starts slowly. I mean, he knows, he recognizes that something is wrong. He also knows that Calliope has something to do with it. So he actually tries to get her to make it stop. Uh, she won't. Uh, she gets a nice line here, in fact, in which she uh, asserts her personhood, which is something that uh, that just seems to have not occurred to him ever. And then we get two pages of Madoc wandering around London, going insane from the flood of story ideas that Dream is sending him. Uh, there are a lot of ideas here in this kind of montage sequence. Uh, we get things like two old women taking a weasel on a holiday. Uh, we get a man who inherits a library card to the library in Alexandria. Uh, and then another one that I liked was uh, a city in which the streets are paved with time. I am certain, Brent, that at least a few of these are real stories. I think one of them might even be Borges. Did uh, did Klinger spell these out for us? Uh, unfortunately, he did not. Interesting. I do think that this this idea of getting a, a library card for you know the ancient library in Alexandria that famously burned down, I'm pretty sure that's a Borges story. I just can't remember the, the title of it. Uh, and I know that I haven't read it, but I do think this is a pretty famous Borges story. So I will look into that. And uh, this, again, can be something that we, we think about doing in the future. But uh, uh, yeah, this is also something I would love to talk about on the forums. We could go through the, the whole list of story ideas here, track them down, see which of these actually are referring to works of literature. Uh, by other people, which of them are referring to works of literature by Neil Gaiman himself uh, that he's either already written or will write in the future. We've already seen him playing around with 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 that in the Doll's House. And also on the forum, I'd really like to hear people's thoughts on. At one point, he throws out the idea, as you mentioned, the two old women uh, take a, taking a weasel on holiday. The next word balloon, he says, "Griffins shouldn't marry." Vampires don't dance, and that's written as two sentences with a period after each. But I'm wondering. Um, is that one title? It just happens to, happens to have two <laughs> periods in it. Is it is the full book actually, or you know, epic poem or whatever? Griffins shouldn't marry. Vampires don't dance. Because I am totally on board for reading slash watching or otherwise experiencing whatever that is. Yeah. What do you think that is? To me, that screams some kind of supernatural rom com. 
Yeah, I imagine it's, uh, you know, a griffin um, and a vampire are probably like roommates. Um, or maybe they're star-crossed, star-crossed lovers in some way, but it's like a kind of comedic thing in which uh, there's less poison and more singing and dancing. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm suddenly realizing that what I'm envisioning is basically the uh, wedding episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where it's the, the groom's side and the bride's side, and they just can't, they just really shouldn't be mixing, uh, and it's uh, hilarious, uh, and also something totally heartbreaking happens. But uh, yeah, that's what I've got in mind. And I'm just imagining like West Side Story, except for griffins and vampires and um, a little less stabbing. Right. And the vampires don't dance the way that both the sharks right. and the jets do. So uh, there'll be a little, uh, some different, slightly different choreography there as uh, as well. It's a lot yeah. of snapping their fingers and looking <laughs> ominous. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fan fiction to be written here to, to treat these as, as uh, story prompts. I think the one I really want the most though is the two old women taking a weasel on a holiday. Uh, I guess I've just been reading a lot of kids books uh lately so that, that seems like that's what that should be uh well we are at the uh the end now we've got uh really just uh, two more story beats and uh madoc runs into the the doctor while he's insane he runs into the doctor who gave him the bezoar at the very beginning uh this bezoar that let him buy calliope from erasmus fry and the doctor being a doctor tries to give him medical help but what Madoc really wants him to do is to go to his mansion and free Calliope. So he hopes that that will make these story ideas stop coming to him. But when the, the doctor gets there, the, the place is empty. The room is empty. Calliope is already gone. And all that he finds is a copy of the Erasmus Fry novel, Here Comes a Candle, uh, lying on the floor. Uh, we see here as well on the book, we see the, the cover blurb says, She was his muse. And the slave of his lust, uh, the exclamation point there. And also the, the woman on the cover looks a lot like how Calliope has been depicted in our story. So uh, it looks to me like the the way that the metaphysics of imprisoning a god works is that uh, they don't have to be present when you free them, that uh, it was... Madoc saying out loud that he frees her that actually did the trick here and that she could feel that happen somehow or possibly dream one and, and got her but in either case that he didn't actually have to be present in order to to do that that just the saying it out loud is really where the power lies so uh you know the universe is listening well and i wonder if it's the universe listening or she needs to hear it because she's bound by something because we don't see we see him open the door and she's gone but she might you know have teleported herself out after the doctor knocks on the door and he says Maddox said you can go. And so given at this point that the doctor basically has kind of the been given the power by Maddox saying, go do this as my agent, essentially. And then the doctor does that. I wonder if that kind of completes whatever loop is necessary to 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 call the contract complete. Yeah, I like I like that reading better, and and I'm just kind of imagining a sort of whoosh, like the sound of her wings, right as Calliope uh, disappears in that sort of split second uh, before he opens the door and sees the book. Yeah, I like that a, a lot better. Well, the story is not done yet because we are going to get two codas. We need to wrap up both Calliope and Madoc here in this story. So uh, Dream and Calliope, they they take a little walk. And Calliope says that she does not want to keep existing in the, the mortal world. This is one of the places where we get this idea that this age of the world just doesn't suit her. And so she's going to go back to, is what she says, uh, to, to living in the minds of humanity. 
this is a really interesting metaphysical idea, right? Uh, does this mean that she's going to set aside her personhood or her, her personification? Uh, or does it mean, Brent, do you think that she has some private place that she can retreat to the same way that we've seen dream and desire do? Does she have like her own you know, palace somewhere? And I don't know. I just always kind of imagine that um, the, the gods versus the endless in their stories don't necessarily go anywhere when they die. They just kind of fade away and then re-enter some kind of, you know, metaphysical either. Um, and it might just be like, this is her deciding, you know, that she'd reached kind of an end point in her life um, and she was done. Much as there's a chance that Erasmus Fry, you know, has poisoned himself to commit suicide and end his own life because he decided he'd reached the end. Um, but... After thousands of years of living, she's decided just to let herself go if if she doesn't have whatever is necessary to kind of keep proceeding. But I, I don't know. We don't we don't I think ever encounter kind of an afterworld for gods. And we get a sense later and we get a discussion about kind of what happens as powers and worshippers for them kind of wane, um, which is something that Gaiman obviously explores in many other um, works as well, including American gods and other things. But, um, but I don't know. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I really, I really wasn't sure about this. I mean, it, it doesn't sound to me like she's going to really unmake herself, even though that's kind of the phrasing that she uses. But yeah, at the same time, I can't imagine that she's what she's really saying here is I'm going to go back to Mount Helicon and just hang out there and ignore the the world. And you know, one of the questions I guess that we can have about this is is what does it even mean to be a god? And this is something, of course, that uh, came up at the end of the doll's house is what does it mean to be a member of the endless, right? Where does their power come from? And you know, dream reminds desire that uh, the power comes from people needing them. It comes from people believing in them or, or believing in their function anyway, requiring their function. And that if the people stop existing, then they will too. Or when the people stop existing, they will too. That is, I think we can say for sure, the same idea that is applying to Calliope here, or at least a variation on that idea is applying to uh, Calliope here. But she also is not, to me at least, sounding like she's talking about a actually ending her life so much as saying this present period of humanity just doesn't appeal to me. So I want to check out. Uh, I want to just, you know, I don't know, Netflix and chill or find a good video game to play for a little while. And then maybe if humanity's different in the future, I'll come back. That was kind of my sense of it. So I didn't, yeah, I just didn't feel like she was winking out of existence here. And and in fact, she asks if she can visit Dream in the, the dreaming. So there's a, a sense that she is going to still be able to be around in, in some way, I guess. Though he says that's not a good idea. She she agrees uh, with him, uh, though I'm not sure she really does so much as she says that she does. Uh, but before they part ways, she asks Dream to stop torturing Madoc. Uh, it's uh, interesting to me that Dream was probably just going to let Madoc continue to suffer the same way that he did with Alex Burgess, that he was going to do this if Calliope hadn't intervened. Uh, it's also a great contrast with Dream because we, we've seen him exact vengeance on his captors, but uh, Calliope is not interested in that, even though I think that her imprisonment is far worse than what Dream's was. And, and I think it's important maybe for the sake of the script, though, that she is the one who affirmatively gets to make the decision um, as to whether Dream continues to kind of make him suffer or not. 
Absolutely. And this issue is not about questions really of, of justice and, and vengeance, though we certainly have seen those come up, at least as minor themes in The Sandman. Uh, that's not really what this story is about. But Calliope just doesn't seem to have any interest in that. In fact, I, I guess maybe what we can say, right, from everything that Calliope is doing in this scene is that she wants to leave this experience behind her as quickly as possible. And maybe if we're, we're thinking about how this present age is not really for her, I mean, that has to be colored by the fact that she has been imprisoned and and continuously raped for literally decades, that she might need some time to go recover from that. Well, this story is going to finish with Maydock, and, and here we see that, yeah, his torment is over, but we also see that his inspiration is gone, and that he doesn't even quite remember any of it, or at least he, he doesn't remember Dream. Uh, but I, I wonder, Brent, do you think that he is also forgetting Calliope now as well? Like, are there the memories that are, are going away from him going to actually end up including almost this whole part of his life? I mean, I kind of hope not, because I hope at this point that he maybe instead realizes that she's a person and feels some amount of guilt um, about what he's done. Um, but it's not entirely clear, although we have seen in the past where people, I mean, dream is as a dream, kind of a figment that becomes harder and harder to remember the details of once he disappears, as with the ideas that he gave. Um, and so I... I could see why there might be a reason why Dream would be forgotten, but Calliope would not. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I definitely hope that he's going to remember Calliope. Because even if Calliope doesn't want vengeance or want him to suffer, I definitely want him to remember who he is and what he has done and to have to to live with that. And uh, maybe that leads to a question that I've I've got, which is what 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 happened with Erasmus Fry? Why did he poison himself? Do you think? I mean, I don't know if he just reached a point where he was, you know, old and tired of living, or if he was fearful that some uh, exterior force might try to rescue Calliope, and he uh, didn't particularly want to keep on trying to find fame. It could be that he was no longer in his age capable of you know, having sex with her, of raping her, and therefore he couldn't get any actual you know, impotence prevented him from being able to actually get anything from her. So she was just a liability at that point. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's interesting to think about. Of course, also the backstory of how does Maynock even know about this? Like, where do you, where do you find out that some uh, famous writer actually has one of the like literal muses imprisoned and is willing to sell her for a bezoar? There's a, there's a definitely a whole backstory there that we could flesh out. But but I'm I'm wondering why he killed himself after he gave her away. I, I think that you're, uh, you know, you point to being afraid, and I I think that was probably my first reading as well, or at least you know this read through here preparing for the podcast episode was that he's so paranoid about someone trying to free her or, or paranoid about being on the end of receiving vengeance or, or, or justice, perhaps, for what he has done to Calliope. He's trying to get all these bezoars because he thinks that they'll protect him, but he maybe goes a little bit insane with paranoia and ends up taking his own life before someone else can do something horrible to him. Like, the, he thinks he would rather kill himself uh, than run the risk of being imprisoned and tortured himself. That was my sense of it. But thinking about it now, I, I wonder if once he's given her to Madoc, he has had to 
reflect on what he's done and that he couldn't live with that, that he couldn't live with what he did to her and took his own life out of uh, guilt and, and, and shame. I mean, I think I like that headcanon better than, I mean, I think I was similar. I had a similar line of thought to what you did when I was reading it originally. And again, for this reading where I was thinking that, you know, perhaps he was worried about someone visiting harm on him in some way. So it was better for him to choose how he went out. So that way nobody would come get him or alternatively that just as he would, you know, collect bezoars to try to protect himself, perhaps he would ingest something that is poison um, and he wouldn't realize it. You know, he would think that to keep COVID at bay, like chlorine in the vein is the way <laughs> to go or something. Um, and that would be poison. So it may just be, you know, stupidity or arrogance um, or foolishness or, you know, caveat emptor. He, he bought something he shouldn't have bought that was, uh, wasn't was a good quality bezoar. or maybe he tried to ingest them or something. Who knows? But uh, I think I like the headcanon better of he was confronted with who he was and couldn't face sitting alone, staring at himself anymore and thinking about the horrible things he had done Um I would like to think that, but we don't see any evidence of that. So I don't know that we can give him that kind of credit. Yeah, I wish that were the story, but I do think that, that Gaiman has has peppered the story with these hints about the paranoia. Uh, so I think that probably is what uh, what he's had in mind. But this would be a fun thing to talk about in the forum. So I encourage listeners to, to join us there and uh, let us know what your headcanon is on this issue. Um, I did want to briefly talk about, because I mean, my regard, I think every time I've read this story is that uh, Richard Marx is... N- Richard Maddock is, um, you know, a kind of a loathsome, terrible person, um, and there's not particularly anything redeeming about it. And I don't think that I see anything in him that I see in myself. Even when I have writer's block, I don't think if only I could rape a muse. Um, that wouldn't be something that would ever, I think, occur to me. But in Highbender's um, Sandman Companion book, um, he excerpts an interview with um, – a friend of Neil Gaiman um, and musician Tori Amos talking about this particular story. And this is condensed and edited from an interview that she gave to a newsletter back in 1993. But and I'm going to just paraphrase. I'm just going to give some snippets from this um, interview. But uh, Tori said, I understand what it was like for the author, Richard Maddock, not being able to write and how he would do anything to be able to write again. And yet, what is your work worth when you have no honor as a person anymore? And then she goes on to discuss kind of, you know, how much you might lie to yourself, particularly when you start tasting fame. And then she kind of concludes by saying, if you're lying to yourself, and I did that for about 10 years straight, you can't be all you are. You become a non-person. Richard Maddox, not an evil guy. He just bought into something like we all do at times, understanding what these choices cost and are being willing and are being willing to take responsibility for them is the big thing. I think that Neil's work really encourages you not to lie to yourself. And I mean, I I think I agree with the end of the sentiment in terms of thinking about what things cost and the importance of not lying to yourself. But this, the statement that Richard Maddox, not an evil guy. And again, this is just something she said in conversation. So, I mean, who knows if she had to like take pen to paper and think about re-editing it, whether she'd stay with that. But um, I think he is an evil guy. But uh, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, if this isn't evil, then I don't know what is, right? I mean, this may not be 
Sauron level of evil in the sense that just evil because of evil. Actually, that's not even really the Sauron story, honestly. Right. But this is not evil just as evil. This is a person making choices that lead to villainy and lead to evilness step by step, that there's motivation, that we can see him as a villain, we can see him as evil, but also sympathize, we can understand how he got there. I mean, these are the best villains that we have in our literature, right? Our villains who are sympathetic. I mean, even Voldemort gets a, a sad backstory eventually in Harry Potter, for example. And that is one of the things I think makes this a great issue, is that we understand the the pressures that he's under, that he's uh, he's taken this money, uh, he's spent it all, he can't give it back, which he's going to have to do if he can't deliver a manuscript, and that he's panicked. I'm not actually sure that Gaiman sets that up as as much as he could have if he wanted us to really be sympathetic to Madoc. This is just something we learn on like page one or page two in just one little conversation, and we don't really sit with him for any length of time or any length of pages seeing that he is really distraught about the you know bill collectors coming due if he's got to return this advance there's almost kind of a nod at a motive here and then we just get the story of this guy who really wants to be a famous writer and will do whatever it takes to get that even if what it means is imprisoning and raping a person uh because he needs the ideas as as dream says right i mean i think that i think dream's line is gaiman's line here right that to 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 make a mockery out of his motives, to not have any sympathy for him, but to just show how selfish and frankly evil they are. Yeah, I don't. I yeah, I think I think she's wrong about that. So let's talk about the cover. Yeah, what do you what do you think of this cover? Um, well, I first want to note the um, dust covers collection. Uh, Dave McKeon. Um, Dave explains that um, his inspiration for the dream cover. Uh, dream cover the dream country covers uh is the him um, being impressed by the work of uh baron story who's done a lot of work in um magazines and uh including time covers and other things he happened to catch a show when he was on tour um of baron story's work um and so kind of was inspired by how that was come together neil notes that uh for the doll's house you know, for each of the collections, they kind of had set rules of some kind, um, whether they're his rules or maybe more accurately, he said Dave's rules. Um, and for Dream Country, he thought that the rules were kind of the painting style and also incorporating the title of the story into the covers themselves. So um, the cover here is acrylic inks, varnish and peacock feathers. Those are actual peacock feathers. Oh, wow. Um, and... I think the peacock feathers work really well um, for it and kind of some nice color balance there. The face that Calliope has on the cover is kind of very disquieting. Um, and it's, 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 it's almost a face that I could see in either kind of horror pulp cover for something, but it's also the face I could see from something that I'm supposed to feel sympathetic towards. It, I, I feel very torn um, by that. But what's your thoughts on the cover? Yeah, well, we should say that she's nude here, and she is uh, crossing her arms over her chest as if to cover herself or to, to protect herself. And, and, and so I had a real sense here, you know, that she's looking out from the, the page at, you know, at the reader, I, I guess, uh, but also 
potentially at Erasmus Fry or Richard Madoch and in in fear, maybe in in terror. And she it wants to she's in a, a vulnerable she's in a vulnerable position and wants to instinctively protect herself from the the danger. Uh, and, and, you know, that that is what's going on in the story. And that was sort of how I read the cover. And I think the choice of the peacock feather is interesting to me because it, it led me to think about um the male peacocks have kind of more vibrant plumage generally than the female ones do. And, you know, in this story, we have the two authors who are getting the fame and attention for their work, but their work is based on, you know, things that they're stealing from a woman. And similarly, like, it's not like there can be male peacocks with the brilliant plumage without there being female peacocks involved in the creation process here, right? Right. Yes, absolutely. And and I think calling someone a peacock is not a good thing. I mean, peacocks are really quite beautiful birds, right? But to call someone a peacock is really just to, to say that they, they are they're kind of drawing attention themselves, you know, more so than is really due to them and kind of um, kind of displaying stuff. And it's kind of the swagger, I think, that we see Richard Maddock have as he works his way through the talk show circuit and the party scene and stuff, right? He's kind of peacocking. Yes, exactly. Because so I guess something that we kind of in, implied but never really stated baldly is that both Erasmus Fry and Richard Maddock don't really seem to want to create art for the sake of creating art. They're not interested in being good artists. They are interested in being famous. They are interested in fortune and, and glory. They don't want to put in the work involved in creating the art. They don't really want to be artists. They want to be people who have created great art and are highly regarded for it and, uh, you know, receive accolades and acclaim. And and, and maybe that's, you know, something that Gaiman is, is really trying to talk about here because Gaiman, I think, is someone who loves the art, right? He wants to put in the work. He doesn't yeah. want the fame. He wants to be an artist. And in the party scene, we definitely, we, we kind of get Richard Maddock at some of his kind of most vile um, when it's not actually a frame immediately before or after him um, raping someone. Um, and that's where uh, a woman who's talking to him at the party says that, I loved your characterization of Eileen. There aren't enough strong women in fiction. And then Richard's response is, actually, I do tend to regard myself as a feminist writer, um, says the person who is um, imprisoning a woman to um, continually rape back in their mansion. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the the title, which you know it's Calliope. I think it's pretty straightforward, but it's you know it does suggest right that Calliope is who matters here. This is her story, uh, and given that we have just learned that she and Dream had a son together, and that he was Orpheus, uh, maybe we're in for more about this, right? That there's going to be more to the importance of Calliope than just this story. And do you think there's a reason why Calliope and not another muse? Is it because of recognizability of her name do you think it's because of her relationship to having a son in some parts of greek myth thinking about why pick calliope as the muse rather than one of the others i do think that the name recognition i mean especially thinking back to sort of what i was pointing out about how calliope is not the muse of writing she's the muse of one specific type of writing uh that we see madoc do in only one of the things that he actually uh, actually writes uh but calliope is i think of the muses calliope and maybe cleo are the, the household names cleo being the the muse of history though maybe i think she's a household name because i'm a 
historian or have been trained as a historian and Cleo's the name of one of our journals. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the reasons you would pick Calliope. And I do think that in our imaginations, Calliope is actually the muse of writing. I do think that is how we tend to think of, of her. Uh, so what was your favorite panel? When we were talking about Erasmus Fry looking like the Joker, Ben, you said that you really liked the the art by the uh, guest penciler, Kelly Jones, here. I didn't so much. I did not certainly did not love the art by Kelly Jones. And in fact, there were a number of places where I actively disliked it. Uh, in fact, that that drawing of Erasmus Fry as the Joker uh, was uh, one of them that I really actively disliked. So I would say that I actually had a difficult time picking a favorite panel this time. That's the first time uh, ever. And, you know, that's just a matter of, of taste. Uh, but the one panel here that does stand out to me uh, is uh, on page 22. It is the panel with the Erasmus Fry book on the, the floor of the, the room in Madox House where Calliope has been imprisoned. I really enjoyed the cover itself. I mean, it's got this old school pole cover on it that also kind of screams Lady Macbeth a, a little bit. But I do also love the blocking of this image here, I guess, where the, the book is what's in focus. But we do see the doctor's feet on either side of it and the, the shadows in the room are are perfect. This, this to me was something that I, I thought was a great drawing. I think we got as close as we can get without picking the same panel because my favorite <laughs> panel is the panel that immediately precedes it where you can't see what's on the cover. You can see that there's something um, you not sure you can tell it's a book at first until you get the, the panel that you described. Um, but the blocking of the light spilling in from the door, um, the fact that it's kind of a dank, uh, dark room and the way that the um, lines are drawn to show kind of the shading in the room also serves to me as a way of making the room look dirtier in some ways because where the light is you're not seeing specks it just looks clean um but you're seeing kind of these lines to show where the the darkness is meeting the the light um and it makes the room look all the more terrible um and i'm wondering if in addition kind of the blocking and kind of there's some really good you know, if this was a film, this would be a Hitchcock film, right? <laughs> In terms of the great imagery and the blocking and kind of, you know, the really good job that um, I think is done both by uh, Kelly Jones as well as by the inker here. Um, I'm wondering if part of the struggle that you had um, lines up with my struggle. My struggle with this was there were so many panels where I was so disgusted with what characters were doing on the screen on the, on the panel that um, I had a hard time trying to find something that I wanted to actually think about revisiting. And I think part of what I like about this panel, in addition to the visuals is that at this point, this is the moment when, and I think it applies similarly, similarly to your panel. This is the moment where Calliope is finally free. This is the, this is the moment where finally we know no other harm is, going to befall her as far as we're aware um and you know richard maddock um we don't know exactly what's going to happen to him but you know he's kind of gotten at least partial payback although not anywhere near what he is due uh so i think that that kind of what's going on in the page i think helped me decide on this panel um but in addition i think the panel does do a good job yeah i think that's that's absolutely right because kelly jones does the art for the next issue as well a dream of a thousand cats and i quite like the art there so it is something specific to this issue and i think yeah you're right just the fact that while i'm reading it even though i think this is a 
excellently told story and does a lot to open up the the Sandman saga, and I like it for all of those things. It is an ugly and uncomfortable story, or it's a story about ugly and uncomfortable things, and you're supposed to feel uncomfortable while you're reading it, and that made me perhaps not be able to enjoy the art. Well, now that we have run through our uh, assessment here at the the end, and uh, I think are leaving uh, our listeners with uh, a number of questions and also calls to write fan fiction, uh, I think uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. And we do hope that you will join us on the the Clay Temple forums or on our subreddit and uh, let us know what you thought of this issue. I I think this is a fairly contentious issue in the the fandom, Uh, but also I think we would love to read your fan fiction. And if you uh, know the title of that Borges story that I'm thinking of, or if you know that I have definitively made that up or, you know, only dreamed it, uh, we'd love to know about that. A lot going on in this issue we'd love to talk about with you. If you would like to support the network and have a chance to vote to choose what we're going to cover between Sandman volumes, and uh, because this is only a uh, a four-issue volume, we are close to that, uh, we'd love it if you checked us out on patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. And next time, uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats. Very very different, much lighter um, issue. Yeah, this is going to be Neil Gaiman's H.P. Lovecraft Lord Dunsany story. I'm really excited about it. But until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>